I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The British Parliament descends into chaos and farce, all to save the skin of Sir Kid Starver. Sir Keir Starmer, the Labour leader's sordid, tawdry game to disguise his absolute refusal to offend Netanyahu's government in calling for a real ceasefire, they've compromised the Speaker, who will probably now have to resign. I hope he got his full 30 pieces of silver in advance. And Britain fires a nuclear weapon. Well, without the warhead, one hopes, because it went into a loop-de-loop and dropped into the drink like a failed firework and the massacres in Gaza continue. As we speak, the British Parliament is voting on a motion, or rather not voting on a motion, to call for a ceasefire, like Netanyahu's going to listen to them anyway. It's all coming up here on what will definitely be the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. One institution after another in once Great Britain has been hollowed out, discredited and roundly despised. The British court system is on trial this week in the Strand in the High Court of Justice where over two days an appeal hearing for the world's most prominent and important political prisoner has been unfolding. The judges have not yet opined, but if they opine the wrong way, then Julian Assange, the world's great publisher, journalist, truth teller, will be on an aeroplane to the United States quicker than you can say Jack Robinson. And then you'll never see him again. You'll never hear from him again. He'll be placed before a hanging judge and jury in CIAville, otherwise known as the state of Virginia, and sent probably for the rest of his life to a supermax penitentiary. And his wife and children will kiss him no more, except very rarely through a glass screen darkly. The whole process has been a farce up to now. The question is, will the judges who presided over that farce, now seek to rescue something from the ashes of Britain's reputation by finding in favour of Julian Assange, allowing him to appeal against the frankly ridiculous decision to send him to the United States on a one-sided extradition agreement by deliberately ignoring what the extradition treaty is supposed to be. I know something about this. When it was before the House of Commons, under then Home Secretary David Blunkett, a blind man, he said that on the face of the bill, it was patent that no political prisoner, no prisoner wanted for 
political offences could be extradited under this new extradition treaty. He said it to me, face to face, man to man, because I had raised concerns about it, as had some others. He told us it could not happen, but now it is happening, or at least unless the judges in the Strand this week decide to call a halt to a damaging farce which has cost the taxpayer hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds of taxpayers' money to keep incarcerated a gentle journalist whose work was published by all the great newspapers of the world, many of whom then turned their back for many years on Julian, but have at least now all rallied to the call to halt the extradition. If Julian Assange is guilty of any crime, then every one of those newspapers who published his work are equally guilty of that offence. But offence, there is none. Julian is being extradited on charges of espionage. But he was never in the United States. He's not a citizen of the United States. He owes no duty of any kind to the United States. He has no loyalty of any kind. Neither can he be expected to have any loyalty of any kind to the United States of America, whose war crimes he exposed to the world. And as I said on Sunday, if the criminals can make it a crime for a journalist to report on the actions of the criminals, then you are living in a criminal's state. And that may be is where we are. The House of Commons is not what it was when I spent the best part of 30 years there. I'm happy, hoping to go back there just over a week from now, and heaven knows they need me. They need some strong hand on the tiller because anyone watching live on television right now at the farce, the chaos in the British Parliament knows that it has badly lost its way. I'm not going to bore you with the arcania of parliamentary procedure, but let me try to shorthand it. I never, in all of my time in Parliament, over the 1980s, 90s, noughties, and into the teens, I have never, ever seen the Speaker of the House of Commons choose two amendments on an opposition day when the opposition day belonged to the Scottish National Party the president of the House of Commons, and the whole thing is governed on precedent, on Erskine May and the precedent of centuries, the opposition party, whose opposition day it is, gets to put a motion and the government gets to put an amendment to it. In this case, the former Labour MP, Lindsay Hoyle, now the Speaker of the House of Commons and nominally independent, was nobbled. In fact, his knees were kneecapped, his ankles were shot through, his arms were tied behind his back to allow not one but two amendments to the SNP motion, something absolutely without precedent. As the chairwoman of the precedent committee, procedure committee, just told the House of Commons moments ago, there is no precedent in the entire history of the British Parliament 
for what the Speaker has just allowed. And he did it on the strength of the blackmail of the Labour opposition. So we've got a Speaker of the House of Commons who could be blackmailed by the opposition. What will happen? God forbid, should they ever be in government. And he's now retreated. He's run away. He's hiding in the building. Hundreds of members of Parliament are walking out noisily. The whole thing has collapsed when millions of people in the country were waiting to see who was for a ceasefire in the slaughter in Gaza and who was not. Why did he do it? Because of the pressure I and people like me up and down the country, the great demonstrations, the great protests, the independent candidates, candidates in by-elections like me, the pressure we've been putting on, the leader of the Labour Party has become simply unbearable to him. He, if this maneuver, sordid maneuver, had not been executed this evening, would have been facing a rebellion of scores, maybe well over a hundred of his own members of parliament, who simply cannot return to their constituents without having voted for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Many of them are feeling the pressure. Many of them have small majorities that they're very certain they're going to lose their seats at the next general election. Others are afraid to face the public at all. They run away like the deputy leader of the Labour Party. Angela Rayner, now renamed Angela Runner. When she sees any of her constituents, she literally breaks into a run for the nearest car so that she can get out of town because so many thousands of her constituents are disgusted by the Labour Party's support for Netanyahu's genocide in Gaza. So these Labour MPs wanted a third way, Tony Blair might call it, a third way that allowed them to pretend that they supported a ceasefire, but with a form of words which guaranteed no ceasefire at all. The form of words that they preferred made no mention of the collective punishment of the Palestinian people in Gaza, even though the International Court of Justice has already decreed that there is collective punishment bordering, if not over the border, in genocide in its hearing in The Hague just a few weeks ago. The SNP motion demanded an immediate ceasefire. The Labour amendment, which should never even be on the table, called for a humanitarian ceasefire, but only one agreed by Israel not imposed by outside organizations, courts, UN, anything like that. No, one which Netanyahu could underwrite. And if you look, I could shorthand it even more. If you want to know the quality of the Labour amendment that should never have been, just look at who is proposing it. Not just Keir Starmer, not just Angela Rayner but the labor fiends of Israel, not friends, the labor fiends of Israel are all there in their glory, their names written on the order paper, dripping in blood. If they can support the motion, you can be sure that it has been agreed between the labor fiends of Israel 
and the Israeli embassy in London that funds them. If that's not true, they can publish who funds them. The fact that they will not publish who funds them makes it clear that it is a front for the state of Israel under Benjamin Netanyahu. Imagine Labour members of parliament funded by the embassy of Benjamin Netanyahu. If it was for a ceasefire, they would not be signing it. It's a wording that has been agreed with the worst scoundrels and criminals in the international community at this time. Any motion acceptable to Benjamin Netanyahu sure ain't acceptable to me and I suspect many millions of others in this country and many millions of others overseas. The Far from the chaos in the House of Commons, of course, a much greater chaos, a bloody chaos exists in Gaza. You can see from these pictures the sea of starving, sick, and increasingly wounded and maimed humanity that is the Gaza Strip. The imminent invasion of Rafah, a tent city of 1.9 million people, by a Western armed, armed force, a superpower, a military superpower, a nuclear armed superpower, are about to invade a tent city of 1.9 million people. It's normally 125,000, it's now 1.9, because the Palestinians have been cascaded from one end of the Gaza Strip to the other, told, go there, go there, go there, no move from there that we just sent you. You'll be safe if you go there. Oh no, we're about to bomb you there. And finally, almost two millions of them have appeared in the very farthest corner of the Gaza Strip. Just a thin razor wire separating them from the Sinai Desert. A Sinai Desert which belongs to Egypt, which has declared that any attempt to transfer the Palestinian problem from uh, Palestine into Egypt will not be accepted by them. And a state of war will exist between Egypt and Israel if this attempt is made. The bombing continues day and night. 70% of the people who are cut down by that bombing are women and children. These are not my figures. These are the figures of the United Nations. Now some 112,000 people are either dead, wounded, with no possibility of hospital treatment, or missing under the rubble, and of course, therefore, dead. 112,000 people out of a population of 2.3 million. Well over 5% of the Palestinians in Gaza are dead, wounded, mutilated, or missing under the rubble. Just for an exercise, do 5% of your own country's population, and then you'll see the scale this devastation represents. 10% of the population of Britain is more than 3 million dead, wounded, or missing under the rubble. Do the maths for your own country. This is a very considerable injury, an unprecedented injury, one that has really never been seen before in modern times. The operative word being seen, 
There have been other massacres. There have been other genocides. But we weren't able to watch them happening as they're happening on our personal telephones. Our children were not able to see them actually happening. So these are unprecedented numbers. This is an unprecedented crime. It represents an unprecedented injury. But the insult that is added to this injury is that throughout the Western world, the establishment political parties and the establishment mass media have covered for this crime, have justified this crime, have censored the pictures of this crime, have throttled the voices standing out against this crime, have criminalized, marginalized, almost literally vaporized any opposition in Western countries. There are countries like Germany where it is now illegal, a criminal offense, to speak as I am doing to you right now. The door could get kicked in. The police could take me away in handcuffs for committing a crime, for telling the truth, just like has happened to poor Julian Assange in Belmarsh. That's the insult that's been added to injury. Truth has been stood on its head. The victims have been painted as the aggressors. The aggressors have been painted as the victims. The Palestinians are called terrorists, while those inflicting terrorism upon them in real time on your telephone are called the victims of terrorism. This insult, this injury will never be forgotten. The bodies and the blood of the dead and wounded in Gaza will stain the clothes, the hands, and hang around the necks like a giant albatross of all the political parties in the Western world who have made all of this possible, who send the guns, who send the money, who send the diplomatic cover at the United Nations, who extend the unlimited recognition to the criminal state of Israel, who welcome it with a red carpet, who send their delegations uh, endlessly there to serve the purposes of Israeli propaganda. These parties will never be forgiven. Which brings me back to what's happening in the British Parliament right now. They know it. They know that we know it. And they know that we're going to act upon it. They know that I stand on the brink of an historic by-election victory which will shake the walls of Westminster. A victory uh, which will change history not just because of its importance in itself, a referendum on Gaza, which will have a resounding result, but because it will act with the power of example to encourage people like me to stand up against the so-called mainstream political parties who are now roundly hated by millions, maybe tens of millions of people in this country. And everything that I have said about British politics applies because everything's bigger in America, applies in the United States equally. We have there too a situation where Zion Don and Genocide Joe are vying with each other as to who can be meaner to the Palestinians, who will kill more of them, who will facilitate the killing of more of them. 
The fact that one is berserk and the other is suffering from acute dementia uh, is a very real problem when you're claiming to be the leader of the world. And if I have contempt for the American political class, imagine what I feel for the European political class that have decided to go over the cliff with genocide Joe Biden. Just think about that. It's going to be the mother of all talk shows with great guests, great calls, a great poll, and we want to hear from you. Fasten your seatbelts. It's live from Rochdale. Get used to it. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Our first guest is a very special young man, both because of his ability and courage and also because he's the son of Palestine's Nelson Mandela, the great leader, Marwan al-Barghouti, imprisoned in Israel, but one day destined to be the president of a free Palestine. I am perfectly sure. His son's name is Arab Barghouti, and we welcome him back onto the Mother of All talk shows. Uh, Arab, thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, the United Nations, again, sunk to the occasion. Uh, the ceasefire motion tabled by Algeria was uh, uh, passed with only one vote against. Uh, but that one vote was the vote of the United States, which promptly issued its veto. Uh, what kind of hope do Palestinians, do Arabs, what kind of hope should humans have in these international organizations if the United States can be opposed by every other country and yet wreck an attempt to bring about a ceasefire? First of all, thank you so much for having me again, George. I think if if we talk about hope and uh, uh, talk about what's happening in the UN and the voting and all of that, I think that it's very hard to find hope in the UN, in the Security Council anymore. I think that the Americans and the American government is, is insisting on uh, getting naked in front of the whole world like the other Western governments to show their true values, not the values that they promote, their true values that we saw in Iraq, that we saw in Libya, that we saw in Syria. And now we're seeing uh, in, in Palestine, it's not uh, uh, different than any of those. 
and they insist on uh, uh, killing any hope for only a ceasefire. We're not asking for a lot. We're asking for stopping the war. And I think this is uh, a clear uh, um, vision of what Western governments are are working towards. But to go back to the hope uh, uh, side, uh, part of it, I think that we do have hope. And we do have hope because the world is waking up. It's amazing to see uh, young people all over the world uh, educating themselves about Palestine, about the history of this cause, about why Palestinians are resisting in the first place. Um, many of, of the mainstream media and the Western governments want you to think that the Palestinians are just violent by nature, which is not true. Uh, uh, resistance exists because there is an illegal occupation of our land uh, um, that is by international law, by the UN, not only by Palestinians. So uh, it's it's amazing to see the young people all over the world because these young people will become the leaders of the future, the politicians of the future. And I have so much hope that it's a start of a big movement that things in Palestine will uh, uh, move to the better. And I think someone like you who has a great history of uh, uh, participating in the uh, apartheid regime in South Africa can see that there is a glimpse of of hope and things are changing. And yes, they take time. But I want to send my regards to all these uh, youth movements, uh, uh, especially my friends in Jewish Voice for Peace and many other Jewish uh, uh, groups that are speaking up against what's, what's happening. Uh, because I think it's it's very uh, uh, no, normal for them to think that things are not moving, things are just stuck. But things like this will take time and we will have to wait and we will have to keep moving and we can't fail our people in Gaza and just say, yeah, things are not moving and I lost hope. No, we can't afford that. We need to all uh, uh, keep going and keep moving forward until the war stops and uh, until Palestinian children are safe like any other children all over the world. Now, you, uh, your mother and father called you uh, by a great name, Arab. Uh, it's civilization, it's language, uh, the language of the prophet Muhammad of Islam. Islam came to the Arabs. It stretches from Marrakesh to Bahrain, uh, from the Atlantic uh, to the Gulf. Uh, what's your feeling as an Arab uh, about the failure of most of the Arabs to even raise their voices meaningfully, let alone raising their hands against this terrible crime? Well, I think it's very uh, um, disappointing when you look at the Arab governments. They did, uh, you know, uh, they are bearing witness of, of the genocide that is unfolding in Gaza, and you would expect more from Arab governments. And I'm not going to say Arab governments and just generalize, because some of them have been uh, playing a really uh, a vital and good role towards the Palestinian cause and still playing. But the vast majority of them are not. And I think this shows you uh, um, the amount of control that the Western governments and especially the American government has in the region on these uh, uh, governments. But to go back to the hope, I don't think you'll find hope with governments. You'll find hope with, with people. We have 400 million Arabs uh, in, the, in the region. And I think 
the vast majority of the 400 million are big supporters of the Palestinian cause and have been moving, uh, protesting and uh, speaking out about what's happening in Palestine. But unfortunately, we have also uh, um, some uh, government uh, restrictions that uh, does not allow them to to speak up uh, like the, the way they want to. But I think that if we uh, work together, if we unite uh, in solidarity with with what's happening in in Gaza, uh, we will find that we we have many things to do together. So yes, the governments are something uh, that uh, is disappointing to us to see that they are literally witnessing what's happening without moving whatsoever. But at the same time, we know that we have brothers and sisters, 400 million brothers and sisters in the Arab world that are feeling with us and can make, can make change, change happen. Now, what's the situation on the ground, Arab? Uh, everyone, of course, is quite rightly fixated upon the slaughter in Gaza. But the slaughter in the West Bank uh, has also uh, picked up. Uh, we have a situation, I'm going to talk about it later, uh, where uh, a Christian uh, pastor from Bethlehem uh, who spoke so memorably at Christmas time, became a world celebrity, uh, was denied uh, an audience uh, with the Archbishop of Canterbury today because he had shared a platform uh, with Jeremy Corbyn, the former leader of Her Majesty's Opposition a member of parliament, uh, proving uh, that there was no room at the inn for the pastor from Bethlehem. Uh, the, the situation in the West Bank for Muslims as well as Christians is pretty drastic, isn't it? It is, and I think it's uh, going under the radar. I think that the Israeli government is taking the chance and the advantage that the people, the whole world is is busy with what's happening, the genocide that is unfolding in Gaza, and taking this chance to uh, uh, collectively punish the Palestinian people all over Palestine. We have many cases of stolen houses, demolished demolished houses. We have thousands of uh, uh, prisoners that got imprisoned from the West Bank since October the 7th. We have so much uh, uh, settler terrorism, what I call settler terrorism, but unfortunately you won't find that term in the uh, mainstream media because it's not Muslims that uh, committed uh, those crimes. But just a couple of days ago, the settlers went into Hawara for maybe the third, fourth, fifth time in uh, during a year, in a span of a year, and they uh, uh, burned uh, uh, people's uh, cars, houses, and this is not the first time. Settlers are unleashed in the West Bank. We have more than seven to 800,000 settlers living illegally in the West Bank, and they keep expanding these uh, settlements, what we call the cancer of, of the West Bank. And I think that uh, uh, the the things that are unfolding in the West Bank are very dangerous, and especially that Ramadan is coming. I think that it will be uh, a big problem very soon. But I want to take that chance to also talk about the Palestinian political prisoners, because since the last time uh, we we talked more than two months ago, I think things got really worse in, in prisons, because we have now 
10 prisoners that uh, got killed in inside Israeli prison. That's the documented cases, of course, since October the 7th, other than the many tens, if not hundreds of, of uh, people who we haven't heard anything about them from Gaza since October the 7th. Um, things are going worse in terms of the conditions, the harsh conditions. Uh, p- uh, prisoners are not given uh, enough uh, food, are not given hygiene, are not given clothes. They are put in solitary confinement. They're, they are getting beaten up. Um, uh, yesterday, uh, or actually today, we lost uh, Khaled al-Shawish, who is one of uh, the biggest freedom fighters of Fatah in uh, the second intifada in 2002. And he's been in prison uh, um, since since then, uh, since 2007. And because of uh, health uh, uh, conditions and w- w- uh, which he was neglected for years, actually, uh, he, he died uh, uh, today. And uh, we have multiple other uh, um, cases that got killed, literally killed by Israeli security guards. And the most, the saddest thing about this is that there is no accountability. Like you never hear about a security guard that got uh, punished for killing, literally killing with their own hands, uh, uh, Palestinian uh, uh, prisoners like Thaer Abu Asab, like Arafat, like many other prisoners who got killed in the last few months only. Finally, Arab, uh, what's going to happen in Rafah if the Israeli armed forces invade Rafah? What will be the result? This is a humanitarian disaster that's waiting to happen. And I think that if there was a time uh, to put the biggest pressure uh, on Israel, it would be this time. I think it's very important for everyone to understand that, as I said, it's not enough. Do not get uh, used to uh, uh, the Palestinians uh, getting killed. Do not uh, normalize the Palestinian suffering. I think that we got to a point where some uh, uh, people are normalizing the Palestinian suffering as if it's something that is normal and and uh, there is nothing wrong with that happening because they're going after Hamas and they go all about all these excuses. I think that now is the time for people to go out and protest and uh, speak out and uh, raise their voices against what's happening because we're talking about 1.5 million people in tents in a, a, a place that is so tiny that can barely fit them. And uh, uh, any attacks that will happen like a ground invasion, we're talking about tens of thousands of, of people that we will lose. Uh, uh, innocent civilians, children, and they want to know about the famine that is happening in in Gaza and unfolding. Today, we are hearing about official cases that have been uh, that have died and passed away because of lack of food, because of hunger. We are in 2024 and everyone is talking about, you know, the the prosperity, about the future, about the development and all of that. And we're talking about uh, uh, not giving people food to live. This is what we got to. And I think the normalization of this is something that I can't get my my head around. The fact that we are dying of hunger, we are dying, getting slaughtered in our homes, uh, uh, children, innocent people, and no one is is uh, is talking on the on the government's level. So now is the time for the people to say their uh, what what they want to say and to go protest and to see 
some of the biggest protests like we see like we saw uh, uh, two to three months ago this is the time and we can't get tired and we can't fail our people in gaza i mean wonderful as always arab barguti please give your honorable mother my best wishes thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows quick uh, break uh, from me and i'll be right back 60 seconds Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. It is stunningly effective, this podcast. People who can be looking at a screen, maybe they're driving or whatever, are listening to this podcast all over the world. Number one in some of the most remote parts of the globe uh, that you would never imagine. So uh, we are doing well with this podcast, but we want to lift it into the stratosphere. Thank you. Uh, one of our most popular guests over the last uh, four months or so is Lara Elbono, a Palestinian-American international lawyer, co-host of the Palestine Pod, as well as being a very considerable activist. And I'm glad to say she's back with us now. Lara, thank you uh, for joining us uh, on the Mother of All Talk Shows. Just before we go uh, deeper, uh, we had... Uh, uh, a caller just a few moments ago uh, with a council of despair, uh, which ended with, uh, we have to get the people of Gaza out of there. They have to leave uh, the country or they'll all be killed. Uh, this is now becoming uh, what we call concern trolling. This is now becoming an Israeli ploy uh, to uh, make people so desperate in Gaza that they will abandon their country. Uh, as the people in 1948 did in the original Nakba. Uh, what are the prospects of success of that kind of uh, um, trolling? Well, thank you for having me, George. Um, look, I, you know, I think it's it's difficult to say with 100% certainty. Um, it's certainly likely and possible that many Palestinians, once this genocidal campaign has finally come to an end, um, will find themselves outside of Gaza. Um, many have already... Um, uh, managed to escape through Egypt just to secure their safety um, and also because their houses have already been destroyed by Israel. Um, but also many Palestinians are insistent that they will never leave, that they would rather die in Gaza with dignity than be expelled to the Sinai or expelled to any other country, um, seeing this very clearly as a continuation of the Nakba, which began over 75 years ago and which is insistent on stealing all of their land um, and expelling them from it. And so I think um, really... Uh, you know, it's it's sort of a, an uncertain or unclear outcome at this stage and whether Israel um, actually commits to an escalation in Rafah as it has promised. Um, if that happens, uh, it's very likely that we will see a mass exodus because people will be slaughtered. And we know at the same time, um, uh, Egypt is now building a fortified buffer zone um, in the Sinai um, that we have seen drone footage of. And so it's very possible that that Israel will literally, you know, 
push Palestinians out at gunpoint, essentially, by massacring them to the point of expulsion. I hope that this doesn't happen. Um, I desperately hope that this doesn't happen. And we need urgent action today to ensure that it doesn't happen. But um, uh, I, I will say that at the end of the day, only Palestinians the outcome of their lives. And they are entitled, like any people, to the right of self-determination, to make choices about their own life, their own future. And I just ask anybody who thinks that the solution is that Palestinians must leave their land, which one of you is willing to leave your land? You know, it's it's it, people throw this suggestion around um, so easily uh, as if it's just this obvious solution to this problem. What's happening in our own countries? In uh, Britain, uh, the House of Commons is in a state of total chaos this evening uh, in order to preserve the government and opposition uh, pro-Israel consensus. They're struggling hard to maintain it, but they will, I think, be able to maintain it. In the United States, I saw Donald Trump online this afternoon saying that he's going to ban all what he called Hamas marches. I presume he means pro-Palestinian marches. He's going to ban uh, pro-Palestinian meetings. He's going to hunt people like you down. Meanwhile, Genocide Joe uh, pretends to be aghast at what Netanyahu is doing, but writes a check for $14 billion more, sends the weapons of mass destruction uh, to Netanyahu's army. Uh, we're in a pretty pickle when there's not even a political choice in our own countries as to whether or not we support this uh, genocide. Yes, absolutely. But I mean, let's be very clear. I, I don't think that, um, uh, you know, Joe Biden cares at all. Um, the U.S. has just issued its third veto in, uh, you know, 137 days of genocide, insisting that the genocide must continue against the will of a hundred and, you know, over 150 states, which invoked the Uniting for Peace um, um, provision twice against the extraordinary invocation of Article 99 by the U.N. Security General, against also the ICJ ruling on provision measures, finding that there was plausible genocide and um, and that that um, Israel has a duty to prevent genocide. So this is very much a, a U.S. and Israeli genocide of Gaza. Whatever words that um, Joe Biden may muster to try to suggest that he may be opposed to it are absolutely um, you know, nonsense. Um, all you have to do is look at the actions. And the actions are that since the very beginning, the U.S. has been insistent that there are, quote, no red lines for Israel. Obviously, international law paints many red lines, but the U.S. has said that Israel has no red lines um, and has allowed Israel to continue now for nearly 140 days um, without interruption, um, expelling Palestinians, killing Palestinians, injuring Palestinians. Over 14,000 children have been killed 17,000 children have been separated from their parents or are orphaned. Um, this is a grave, grave humanitarian disaster. And um, I simply don't have any sympathy for this notion that anybody in, 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 in the Biden administration actually cares about Palestinian life whatsoever. Um, the choices are obviously, you know, very dark if you're a voter um, in the United States or in the UK. But, um, you know, for Palestinians um, and, and those who are our allies, 
it's simply not going to work to threaten us again with, uh, you know, how typically these um, elections go in the U.S. is that Democrats can't offer you very much. The only thing they can offer you is that they're not Republicans. And so uh, typically we're scared into voting for them because of the threat of what, what might happen if a Republican is in power. That's not going to work anymore. And I think many voters have expressed that they will not be intimidated into voting for Joe Biden because the opposite could be worse. Because, frankly, as a Palestinian right now, nothing has been worse in my entire life than the last 140 days. Now, uh, let me take advantage of your uh, distinguished uh, legal experience and knowledge. Uh, South Africa took another go at the ICJ last Friday. I have not had time to study it in detail, but at a glance, it seemed that the ICJ had failed to rise to the occasion uh, of South Africa's latest effort. Can you explain to the viewers what that effort was and how badly, if at all, the ICJ let them down, let us down? Well, I think we should be very careful about the interpretations, uh, you know, of, of legal um, decisions that we see in media because they are spun with this media bias um, that is very pro-Israeli um, uh, to begin with and actually twist the wording of these legal decisions. That's exactly what the U.S. and Israel did with the order for provisional measures. They went around on a media campaign telling everybody that they won, when in reality, they completely ignored that the court had ordered no less than six provisional measures that clearly instructed Israel, told Israel to stop the killing to uh, prevent and punish incitement, to ensure that their military did not carry out any genocidal acts, and so on and so forth. But this is not how this was spun in the media. Now, with respect to the follow-up action that was um, uh, brought by South Africa, it was brought as sort of an emergency petition in response to Israel's threat of a, 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 an invasion and escalation of Rafah, where right now more than 1.5 million Palestinians have been concentrated. Um, they have been pushed down further and further south over the course of four months uh, as a result of so-called evacuation orders by Israel, where Israel told them, if you go south, you'll be safe. Well, what Israel did was it expelled them from their homes, destroyed the majority of their homes. Now over 70% of all the infrastructure in Gaza has been destroyed by Israel. Now you have 1.5 million Palestinians that are concentrated in the southernmost part of Gaza in makeshift tents. And Israel is threatening for, for the last you know um, several days now, if not weeks, to invade Rafah in a very, very, very serious way, a ground invasion, an escalation. And of course, the world has completely rejected this and come out in serious opposition to this. Um, and this is an indication that Israel is clearly not abiding by uh, the order for provisional measures, which was rendered by the court. And so what South Africa did was it went before the court and it said that due to these exceptional circumstances of this threat uh, of an Israeli invasion and escalation in Rafah, we are seeking additional measures to ensure um, the protection of the Palestinian uh, population. Um, and basically what the court did was that it decided not to issue any new provisional measures, but it still nevertheless referred to the situation in Gaza and in particular in Rafah as a, quote, humanitarian nightmare, um, insisting um, that it, this was a, quote, perilous situation, which demanded um, immediate and effective implementation of the provisional measures indicated by the court 
in its order of January 26th. So basically what the court was saying was if Israel actually were to abide by the six provisional measures that we ordered in January, then it wouldn't be allowed to carry out this invasion and escalation of Rafah. And so we don't need to add any new provisional measures because the only thing that's missing here is Israel's compliance with the original ones that we um, actually ordered. And so I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding, perhaps, in terms of what is the role of the court and then what is the role of the rest of the world? The role of the court is to decide the law um, and order the measures that it did. But the, the the role of enforcement, actually getting Israel to comply with the order of the court is not the court's responsibility. That's that's the responsibility of the people. That's the responsibility of states. That's the responsibility of companies who have the ability to stop doing business with Israeli companies, states who have the who have the uh, power to sanction Israel, uh, to cut ties with Israel. And while we have seen some of that, we certainly have not seen enough in order to actually compel Israel to change its behavior. So I think it's worth um, just recalling, you know, we've seen... For example, a Japanese firm cut ties with an Israeli defense firm. We've seen Belgium suspend um, some arms uh, export licenses to Israel. We've seen a Dutch court just a few days ago um, suspend the transfer of F-35 fighter jet parts to Israel. This is the type of stuff that we need to see much, much more of. And, 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 and to be frank, we need to see really just a mass movement of, of action to isolate um, uh, Israel in order to counter this unconditional support that the, that the U.S. provides it. And I'm going to quote just from um, the uh, oral argument of the lawyer, uh, Philippe Sands, who, who argued on behalf of um, Palestine in the ICJ hearing that's pending this week um, on, on the legality of the occupation. And he said that the right of self-determination requires that the U.N. member states bring Israel's occupation to an immediate end And he said, no aid, no assistance, no complicity, no contribution to forcible actions, no money, no arms, no trade, no nothing. That's the kind of stuff that we need to see in order to compel Israel to comply with its international obligations, including the ICJ's order on provisional measures in the genocide case brought by South Africa. Finally, uh, the 26th uh, hearing gave them one month. Uh, to report back on uh, on what they had done in relation to the findings of the ICJ. Is there any sign that they are doing that, intend to do that? It will soon be the 26th of February. They're going to show up. And if they are, what are they going to say? I think it's possible. I think it's likely that they will show up. I think that they're going to submit a report that um, completely obfuscates the factual reality on the ground. They're going to say that uh, since the court's uh, order, they have continued to comply with international law, which Israel holds um, you know, to be very dear. They always say in word and in deed. Um, that's kind of their slogan right now. Um, they're going to say that the only actions that they have carried out have targeted Hamas and that the civilians that were killed were collateral damage. But that's just simply not consistent with the reality on the ground, because even since the ICJ order on provisional measures, we have continued to see statements of genocidal intent being made at the highest levels of Israeli government um, and total contempt for the International Court of Justice also being made by government officials. And so therefore, because the genocidal intent continues to be demonstrated and the actions that follow are uh, reflective of that intent, um, I, I don't think that that's going to be a very convincing argument. 
Um, but we will see what the court um, will des- decide to do uh, with that update. South Africa will have the opportunity to respond. But ultimately, I think I just want to emphasize this is really a question of how do we compel Israel to actually abide by its obligations? How do we you know, take this order um, and enforce it? Um, and, and that's really the job of the people, the governments, and we need to be doing much more to uh, cut off Israel, to isolate it, and, and to treat it as the pariah that it is. Amen. Thank you, Lara Elbono. We'll keep that under review. Hope we uh, can have you back soon uh, to discuss that. Let me take a quick break, and then it's the one and only Joe Laria, one of my favorite journalists in the world. He's coming up right after this break. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Not just the editor-in-chief of Consortium News. He's an author, he's the correspondent, and he is a co-host of CN Live, which is indispensable for international news. I'm glad to say he joins us now. Joe, thanks uh, very much indeed. It's been a while since I was able to interview you, but you're in Blighty. You're in London for the uh, Julian Assange hearings. Give us, please, some of the flavor of that. Hello, George. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just a few blocks from the Royal Courts of Justice in a hotel here. Um, It was a bizarre two days, kind of delusory world of the the United States and the construction of a, a kind of fake world that we see imposed on the world and too many people go along with it. And we saw that in the courtroom where they describe investigative journalism, standard practices of journalism happening every day as espionage and as uh, a unique threat to national security. And how this journalist, John uh, Julian Assange, was actually not a journalist, but he was endangering uh, informants' lives and on and on and on, just exactly what's in that indictment. And um, the problem is that um, this was his last gasp. Back in 2020, there was an extradition treaty. Of course, Julian was arrested on 2019 in April, charged with espionage for publishing secrets, government secrets, not only of the United States, but many governments around the world, exposing crimes. And he was arrested for that. One of his lawyers made it very clear that there is a nexus between the publication of those documents and his persecution, that there was a timeline that shows the motives of the United States. It was really quite interesting how he laid this out. For six years, there was no prosecution of Julian Assange. These documents that he was been charged with were published in 2010. They were also published by Le Monde, Der Spiegel, El Pais, The Guardian, and The New York Times. At that time, Joe Biden, who's vice president, was asked on Meet the Press, a U.S. talk show, uh, whether they were going to uh, go after Julian Assange. He said, we can't prosecute him if we can't prove that we got him red-handed stealing these government documents. If he passively received them as a journalist, there's nothing we could do. Well, the Obama administration didn't indict him because they couldn't catch him red-handed. And uh, even though they don't call him a journalist, they knew that he was acting as one. But six years later, something happened. The International Criminal Court decided to, this is according to Julian Assange's lawyer, Mark Summers, the ICC decided to look into Afghanistan and maybe uh, maybe actually even 
prosecute the United States for war crimes in Afghanistan, and partly based on WikiLeaks releases. Suddenly, they were attacking. American officials started attacking Julian Assange. And then when the 2017 Vault 7 leaks came out, which exposing CIA spying tools, Mike Pompeo, in his first public appearance as CIA director, went after him very strongly and called him in a non-hostile, non-state intelligence service, which was a legal term which allowed the CIA to then use any operative operations they wanted without oversight from Congress. And as we know, they actually had plans that Donald Trump asked for and Mike Pompeo drew up to either kill or or rendition Julian Assange. Uh, and then they didn't know where to put him. So the White House lawyers thought this was going too far. You better come up with an indictment. That's the reason he was indicted, George. And he then went on uh, extradition hearing in 2020. He was he won the judge, Vanessa Beretta, the magistrate judge, said that his me- mental health conditions, his suicidal tendencies and the condition of U.S. prisons meant he should not be extradited to the U.S. The U.S. then appealed that to the high court with some after-the-fact assurances saying, we'll treat him well, he won't be, uh, he'll get medical care and won't go into a, into a dungeon. And, and the high court accepted that. They didn't challenge the diagnosis, his health diagnosis. They just said the U.S., uh, they believed the U.S. that they would take care of him. When Assange wanted them to appeal that to the U.K. Supreme Court, the court Supreme Court did not take the case. Now they're trying to appeal one last time at the high court, and a high court judge rejected last June their appeal on many, many points of law. Uh, And what we saw today, yesterday and today, Tuesday and Wednesday this week, George, was uh, an appeal about an appeal. The Assange lawyers now are trying to get two new high court judges to agree to have an appeal uh, to actually what we saw was a dry run these two days, a kind of mini um, appeal. So we went over all the issues. And I think these two judges were quite surprised at things that they heard. Uh, I don't think they were very well, well versed in the Assange case. They did stick, unfortunately, to some of these um, myths, really, that part of this grand deception that Assange was in an hurting informants, that he didn't redact the names from the documents. That they kept asking about. But they also had some intelligent questions, which makes me believe that they're going to give the appeal but it won't happen, I believe, until after November. We won't get a decision about what happened these two days until after the election, because the last thing Joe Biden needs is a journalist in chains showing up on the American shores during a presidential campaign where Donald Trump would certainly make something out of that. Because a lot of, he's the one who's responsible for Assange's indictments. I'm not talking of anything uh, good about him in terms of Assange, but his supporters, many of them are libertarians. They care not only about the second but also the First Amendment. So he would make something out of that. I don't think we're going to get anything till November. And I do think that I believe from what I saw that there would be. And I was inside the courtroom sitting between the the bench and the lawyers behind me. I think that uh, in a very small courtroom, courtroom five, that they're going to allow this appeal. Now, uh, Joe, one of the things that strikes me as you adumbrate the, the chronology of all of this is how grossly disproportionate it all is. I mean, what a waste of time and money and a man's life over stories. Yesterday's fish and chip paper from 2010, (laughs) almost 15 years ago, a 15-year epic saga uh, over a set of stories that are now accepted everywhere as fact. 
Everybody knows about American crimes uh, in Abu Ghraib, in the war logs, in the conduct of the occupation of Afghanistan, and so on. Everybody kind of knows that and has banked that or discounted that. And yet the U.S. juggernaut keeps on coming for Julian. Why do you think? They can't let anybody else do what he's done. Uh, this was something they never expected, that uh, a new form of journalism, almost analogous to Gutenberg and the printing press, using the Internet to put out raw documents, hanging the U.S. by their own words and other governments. And this is something they can't allow to happen again. And they're making, obviously, an example of him, and they want vengeance. And when I say they, I mean basically the Central Intelligence Agency, who we know was actually considered seriously killing him, poisoning him. Uh, or or kidnapping him and renditioning back to the U.S. from the embassy of Ecuador here in London, where he lived for seven years. So uh, they they have to get him. They're just mad. They're mad. Uh, they want revenge. They cannot be treated like this by someone with a with a computer and it was able to to expose their dirty secrets. This is really it. This is any and, and one of Mark Summers again, one of Assange's lawyers, pointed out in his presentation and his submissions that. Uh, the U.S. is acting like any authoritarian regime would treat any dissident journalist who exposed their secret crimes and that the U.S. side never wants to talk about what's in the documents. And he making this clear, this has to be talked about. And there's a lot of issues. You know, the death penalty is still not off the table here. This became a big issue over the last two days because uh, under the Espionage Act, in a time of war, they could put a death penalty there. Now, it, that's highly unlikely, it seems. However, the U.S. refuses to give Assurances, I should say, the Home Secretary refuses to ask the U.S. for assurances, which in extradition cases to countries where there is the death penalty is a routine matter for a British Home Secretary because under the law and under the extradition treaty the U.S. has uh, with Britain and what Britain has with other countries, if the country, if, if the person sought is going to, could get the death penalty, Britain doesn't send that person. Why won't they ask the U.S. to give an assurance? So this is chilling. Again, probably won't happen. The First Amendment, he's going to be denied the right of the First Amendment, which is a violation under Article 10 of the European uh, Convention on Human Rights, the equivalent of the U.S. First Amendment. Uh, there are many, many of these points of law that we discussed, uh, that were discussed in the court, that Assange is, um, you know, he's, he's, even if he, uh, George, even if he gets this uh, hearing, he's going to stay in Belmarsh prison, Having already served his his uh, bail jumping charge, he's been four years since then without any conviction, and they're going to keep him there at least another year or more, probably uh, because of this high his this this appeal that he wants to have. So maybe they are already getting the punishment that they've sought. They can't let this guy get away with it. They want to make a huge example of him. That's just the way it is, unfortunately. You think, though, Joe, that they've, they've really had their pound of flesh. I mean, how much do you want? The guy's done, effectively done 15 years uh, of incarceration uh, for writing journalism. It's, as I said at the beginning, is grossly disproportionate, isn't it? Yes, and I think more and more the world is waking up to that. We've seen many press freedom and human, and human rights groups now, including Amnesty, who are not st stepping up for him. We have... Presidents, four or five presidents of Latin American countries asking for a bond, for Joe Biden to drop this charge. We have the Australian parliament passing a resolution about 10 days ago demanding that the U.S. drop this case. You know, Biden will often say, uh, and 
it was repeated by Albanese, the Australian prime minister, that, you know, the U.S. can't, uh, the White House can't interfere with the Justice Department because there's a Chinese wall there. It's political and has to stay out of the, you know, meeting, meeting justice it cannot be. And yet we saw, George, we saw this story where the uh, the prosecutor who interviewed Biden to see whether he would charge him for having classified documents at home instead put out yeah he said no he the guy can't even remember when he was vice president so we're not going to be able to charge him well you know that the white house lawyers were so furious before that came out they kept sending letters to the department of justice saying do not put that out so of course they'll interfere in the doj when it's in their own interest and not for julian assange joe laria as always a master at work thank you very much indeed joe laria editor-in-chief of consortium news a must-read if you're interested in international affairs. Simon is in Florida. He's our professor on the U.S. and the ceasefire. Simon, welcome. Greetings to you, Mr. Galloway, and to your worldwide audience, though unfortunately I do not bring glad tidings. And um, you're quite right that there has been some definite um, underhandedness in the House of Commons this evening. But you'll be interested to know that Hoyle is currently meeting with the leaders of all the major parties trying to keep his job. So it may not be his eye that you're trying to catch in a few days' time. So that would be interesting to see how that turns out. Yes. It was a note- Maybe it was they'll notable. make me the speaker, Simon. Well, you're already going to be independent, so you wouldn't even have to renounce your party affiliation. So that would save some time, wouldn't it? Exactly. I'd be an excellent speaker of the House of Commons, trust me. Anyway, go on. Um, It was noticeable, though, that the clerk of the Commons publicly called out the decision of the um, speaker. I'd I'd be interested to know what the last precedent for that was. Maybe one of your staff can look that up. There may have been a quiet word in the ear in the past, but to actually publicly mm. call him out, I think, was probably highly unusual. But unfortunately, this follows on another despicable scene in the United Nations Security Council yesterday, where obviously, as feared, though also forecast, um, Mrs. Greenfield, the ambassador for the United States, uh, once again in the face of near universal opposition, the only um, state abstaining being the laptop of the United Kingdom, unfortunately. So it ended up being a a 13-4, an immediate ceasefire as proposed by the Republic of Algeria and the United States, just the lone voice against having delayed the vote even occurring for 20 days, during which time, obviously, many, many more people were gravely killed and wounded in Gaza. A lot of and dead people, yeah. It's noticeable, I think, the um, the reaction of the Algerian foreign minister <laughs> and of the, the entire two-and-a-half-hour proceedings, along with the very good lady from Guyana again, who's in conduct, I will shortly explain. Just this one sentence, if I may. And the Algerian ambassador, after expressing his disappointment and dissatisfaction, which was um, echoed later by the Chinese, who also had a bit of an argument with the Israeli ambassador, who seems to be going out of his way to um, find a superpower to have a a fight with. The Algerian ambassador said that he would continue to work within the United Nations in order to ensure that the war was brought to a close 
as swiftly as possible. And then he said this incredibly poignant thing in Arabic with simultaneous translation so people can find it on the UN web um, YouTube channel if they wish. He said that he would be powered by the souls of thousands of innocent people. Powered by the souls of thousands of innocent people. And I have to say that uh, there, there was a moment where everyone could have like paused. He had already said that at this point in history, everyone would have to look to their conscience when deciding how they would vote. Now, obviously, you and I understand that's rhetoric, and normally the, these ambassadors have kind of written instructions from their governments as to how yeah. they're going yeah. to vote. Yeah. But the, the excuses yeah. from the American ambassador were paper thin, paper thin. Mm-hmm. And it was noticeable that immediately after the Algerian ambassador, the um, ambassador from Guyana, who's still the rotating president of the Security Council, she very succinctly in um, approximately five minutes absolutely took apart phrase by phrase the American argument that had largely rounded upon the conduct Um, the accusations of misconduct against the Algerians, saying that they had rushed the votes and they hadn't been willing to listen to other people and they hadn't cooperated in terms of uh, having amendments suggested and so forth like that. And she categorically refuted all of those allegations. And it was noticeable that whilst they said they didn't agree with every single word of the Algerian draft, both the French Mm. and the Civilians, fellow NATO members uh, roundly criticized the conduct of the United States. But unfortunately, this is not the only bad news that we have been witnessing. Um, it now is crystal clear that the PTI have, in Pakistan and Mr. Mr. Khan have been uh, soundly cheated in upwards of 80 parliamentary seats for the National Assembly. And it now looks almost certain that... Um, Mr. Nawaz Sharif, though even his parliamentary victory is heavily disputed, will be leading the um, government once again, taking over from his brother now that he's returned from his um, sojourn in the United Kingdom whilst he was avoiding prosecution. He's the, he's the king of Mayfair. Well, I have to go. I've got another urgent appointment, so I need to finish. Bang on the nine o'clock closing hour now. But I want to simply reflect that this was the day that a pastor from Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus Christ, was refused an audience with Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Imagine that.